Good afternoon. We are back. Welcome to another of our live streams here on the Alternative View. Back properly starting term now. Thank you to everyone who watched the Freshers Week special last week and got involved on our social media as well. Really appreciate all the support that we've had from people coming in, watching the show, and of course, who following us from last term as well. It is great to be back. And indeed, a lot has changed since we did the show last term. Um, not just really in... Um, Obviously, some of the content, some new things you'll be getting to see today. Really looking forward to how they go. But also in terms of some of the ways that you can now listen to our show as well. Um, new to this term, as you may have seen with the Freshers Week special, we are now taking audio recordings of our shows and putting them across all sorts of different audio sites, including, and not limited to, I have the list here, it's a very long list, including Mixcloud, Spotify, Anchor, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. So we will be promoting our show. We'll be putting out all of the shows from the next four weeks, definitely. Things are very up in the air at the moment as to what we do after that. The show continues. Maybe we don't know in what form. More to come later. But all of our shows will be put up on, our, on these sites. So please give them a listen. If you do think I have the face for radio, it's so detestable. You don't want to, what, you don't want to watch the live stream. Please listen to the show. Um, really appreciate all the support we've had so far on these sites. And so, as I mentioned, for the next few weeks, um, between now, weeks one and four, we will be broadcasting our live stream Wednesdays one till two. And Raw will also be reposting our broadcast. The audio version of it will be going up on their Mixcloud and their Spotify Saturday, five o'clock. So a good time for you to watch your three o'clock kickoffs. And just before the evening, what do you want to do? you want to go and listen to Alternative View. So certainly a lot for you to enjoy there. Well, it's great to really see everyone getting involved on social media. That's a key point of our show today. Um, I've got a question, and we did this for the first time last week. And so I want you guys to come up with this question, because obviously it is the big talking point at the moment, which is online university. Um, we are starting our lessons again. We're starting to go back in to what really is a very weird year. So we will be coming to this later in the show, but please comment below. How have you found your online university experience so far? Comment on our Facebook page, on our Twitter as well. I'll keep checking social media. I'll be feeding the comments in throughout, but there is something for you to enjoy. Now, I'm gonna be bringing on both my guests. Now we are hoping that Georgina Milner will join us later on the show. She's currently having a few issues. Hopefully she'll be able to join us later on in the show but for now i'd like to welcome my first guest and it is his first time here on raw and he couldn't have picked a better show to go on to johnny hoyle good afternoon my friend good afternoon cam how are you doing oh all good really just settling into uh time back at uni yeah absolutely it's kind of crazy at the moment i think obviously we've come back after six months out trying to get back into that vibe at the moment um as i said this is the first time you've done a show with us here I've got to ask, have you have you had any advice? Has anyone kind of been giving you a few things to say or is uh, it just Johnny Hoyle on free fall? Yeah, no. Well, that's how we like it, really, isn't it? Yeah, you don't <laughs> want to plan too much. You want it all flowing from the heart. Yeah. Emotional, heartfelt. That's what we like on this show. We like it to all to be raw. Hence, we're on raw as well. Yeah, so, the truth. It's not a coincidence or anything. Um, I had to bring in my second guest as well. Um, you may remember her. If you watched Johnny Jenkins' show last week, you may remember that she did try to get on the show and her it, through no fault of her own, her internet was 
rather rather poor. You know, we do need that government rollout of 5G broadband at some point. But Rose, I'm pleased to say, has got working internet today and joins us live from her house in LM now. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I mean, I feel like I'm giving your my house this. I'm in a different room. It's working. We've recorded in about 15 minutes, so we'll see if I can keep where the Wi-Fi goes. But I'm excited. Yeah, I, I can say from experience, Wi-Fi has been the most temperamental thing since I came onto campus. I had a month of this awful Wi-Fi, and I'm surprised any of the live streams we were doing actually worked. It was to the point where I couldn't even, like, literally use the Wi-Fi right next to the hub. I've, I've changed it now. I have I have literally the Wi-Fi next to the hub. I'm not like I'm hogging it or anything, but that is my life at the moment. But thanks very much to both my guests for coming on today. As I said, hopefully Georgina Milner will join us later in the show. But for now, it's time for us to bring in something new this week. Um, as I said, I took stock during term three last year to work out what we wanted to do with this show, what more we could do with it. And so I'm going to introduce something a bit new, which is obviously a lot has happened over the last week in news. There is a lot for us to talk about. So let's try and condense it into 60 seconds. And this is where the point now, obviously, if we'd be back in the studio, which I was hoping right now, I'd have this access to this brilliant soundboard. And I could come up with this massive 60 second countdown and the music and the drama. And we could play it up to this massive, massive crescendo while I'll eventually probably not read it within a minute. But so we can try. So Rose has kindly agreed to provide me a countdown clock, which will suffice in the meantime. If you are listening to this, by the way, obviously we are live streaming right now. You may not be able to see the timer. So set up your own 60 second countdown yourself so you can actually prove or disprove that I've actually done this. So if we can get the clock ready, then we should be able to start. So this is the news in 60 seconds. Three, two, one. So quite a lot has happened with coronavirus over the last week. 14,500 new cases from the last week. Um, Hospitalizations, they've gone up 25%, uh, mostly across the northwest and the northeast. 16,000 lost cases over the last week. Um, quite a difficult week for the government in that regards, new restrictions being now expected in Nottingham. And the SNP had quite a bad week. Margaret Ferrier, um, the Member of Parliament for Rutherford Glen and Hamilton West, travelled down to Parliament with symptoms. She took a test, tested positive, travelled back both times on the train. She is facing calls to resign. Nicola Sturgeon has mooted a possible circuit breaker coming as well in Scotland. Um, Donald Trump caught coronavirus last week. We'll return to this more later, but a lot of sort of contradictions as to the nature of his condition at the moment. Is Donald Trump well? Has he recovered for the yet? He's come back from hospital last week, but we will see what happens from there. Um, difficult time for cinemas as well. Of course, the new James Bond movie delayed until April 2021. There's certainly time for the cinemas to die. And a crazy weekend in the Premier League, finally. Um, Aston Villa beating Liverpool 7-2. United 6-1. Leeds, yeah, mental. And that was in a week in 60 seconds. Um, yeah, quite a lot happening so far, I think, in that week. Not just, as we said, in the world of coronavirus, which really has dominated our lives as well, but more widely. So that if you do, if you like that, let me know. I'll keep it going over the next few weeks. And if I can hopefully be able to properly get the news in 60 seconds, that would also be an advantage. Now, I want to come to both my guests firstly. Um, what's really gripped you over the last week in terms of the news? Because there is quite a lot that's happened. So Johnny, if I can come to you first, is there any one story that's kind of gripped you so far? So uh, I'm going to throw in a curveball because, you know, seemingly European politics have dominated and, and US politics has. So I'm going to bring up a story which is uh, 
in the, the Nagorno-Karabakh region in, uh, in Armenia with the conflict, going conflict between our Azerbaijan and Armenia. And actually, to bring up the lack of media coverage it's getting, there's actually a, uh, a full-scale proxy war happening, which is seemingly, you know, not on BBC, not on Sky, it's being forgotten. And, you know, we can't forget that this is, in effect, a proxy war between Russia and Turkey, uh, both backing uh, different dogs in this fight. And uh, Turkey being a member of NATO, this hypothetically could escalate very quickly. So um, maybe questions which bring up is why are the media not cover covering this as, you know, as much as a conflict in the Middle East, for example? Why, why do you think they're not covering it? Um, I don't think it's as, uh, as sexy a story. I don't think it directly, uh, you know, brings in leading members of NATO like Britain, France, America. I think it's, it's you know, it's a bit boring. Because of course the media sells to, for you know interactions and people to 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 look at it to read articles on it and I don't think it's a particularly enticing story to read really. So is it in a sense maybe the westernized bias of our media playing up there? W without a doubt, without a doubt, can. Okay, well certainly something that we do need to see how that develops. I've followed the events in Nagorno-Karabakh as well. It's a very, very kind of difficult region. And certainly something we need to follow the tensions there. Rose, if I can come to you next, any story that has grabbed you over the last week? Well, I want to talk about the slightly niche story that's unfolding in the US at the moment about um, Texas Senate race. We all know there was a very hot race in 2018 between Cruz and O'Rourke. Um, there's another very hot race that's going on at the moment that isn't receiving quite the same amount. Our um, senator is Michael John Cornyn. He's a massive Trump backer, a big Trump Republican, wherever Trump is, born and there, defending the independence. He's been challenged by a woman called MJ Haygart. She won the Purple Heart. She's a veteran. And I think she's a very, very interesting political figure because she kind of encapsulates the face of the Democratic Party changes. And it kind of sums up um, the fact that Texas is going to be an incredibly important state election. He's just released um, a new fundraising chat, and she is skyrocketing. I think she raised about 13.5 million in the past quarter, and that combined with Biden's about to launch established in Texas. Um, it's a nice little kind of microcosm the different politics and changing aspects of US elections and the US party. No, certainly. And of course, Texas is an interesting region in terms of the US at the moment, because we've seen in the last couple of years, I think Beto O'Rourke was kind of the kind of key figure that demonstrated this in 2018 when we had Beto O'Rourke come within four points of beating Ted Cruz in 2018 and no one's really seen Texas up for play we'll talk about the election in a little more depth later on but do you think that this is a sort of permanent trend now in states like Texas and states like Arizona where the Democrats are starting to gain a much stronger foothold in these deeply conservative, repu typically Republican states? Or do you think this is just a phase, a fad reflecting the current situation? I think it's too soon, kind of almost past the discussion. I think we're going to know for sure um, in November when we know if we're stuck with four more years of Trump. But I think the interesting thing about MJ Hagar is she's a Republican, essentially. She's against Obama in both 2008 and 2012. Both the Carly Fiorina in 2016 primary, but only very recently, kind of become kind of one of the rising from the Democrats new progressive wing, how it all started this one. Um, and I think it's really emblematic of, it's almost similar to kind of Tory Remainers over here. It's 
voters who are very much on the right but kind of so horrified by the direction that their party that they're looking to outlet. Uh, I said it's far too soon to be able to pass it if it's just a crowd or not. We're going to with the Republicans. Well, no, certainly you could uh, give us a nice little link into something we will be covering um, very shortly. Um, I just wanted to bring something up about the um, 16,000 lost coronavirus cases. I, I, I don't know. I'll, the government have said that it was the result of an Excel spreadsheet. And they had this Excel spreadsheet that just didn't have the capacity to include all these cases. So we weren't testing and tracing properly in regions like Nottingham. Now, that in itself is bad and obviously a sign that the government needs to improve the test and trace. But it, it got it got me thinking. And I know Rose and I have spoken about the thick of it a lot, which is one of my favourite political comedies. It's a brilliant show. And I was trying to think how the government would be reacting. And there's this great scene where the government go and they lose six months worth of immigration figures, which is just... Which is just something unbelievable. But the fact that they then go from that, and I'm just kind of thinking, is that what government's going to be like at the moment? Is it that sort of reaction? You've got to sort of Dominic Cummings going in like the sort of Malcolm Tucker-esque kind of, I mean, I can't repeat the language um, that Malcolm Tucker would use on air, sadly. There's a lot of um, Ofcom would, I think, not approve to me doing that. But I, I certainly would love to have seen the reaction in government when they found that they'd lost 16,000 cases, because that's just that's just slightly insane. But certainly a lot for us to discuss from this week's news. But we are going to move on now. Please get involved by commenting throughout about any of the stories that we bring up on the show today. Um, we'd love to have your opinions and we'll bring them up as we go throughout. So. Obviously, we are coming now to the end of what's traditionally been party conference season. And I, I must admit, I was slightly disappointed that I missed out on party conference this year. It was the first one I was going to go to. And I've sort of been hyping up because I'd heard loads of people talk about how great party conference was. You know, it's an opportunity for you to go and meet loads of politicians, an opportunity for you to basically have a lot of networking, to really see the inner workings of the party. But... Also, just a fantastic opportunity to unwind and maybe have a few drinks. Not that the alternative view in any way condones quite excessive drinking. We, we, we wouldn't do that. But obviously, it's an interesting opportunity for us to now look at the way each party has developed over the last year. Because, of course, only a year ago, Brexit was still very much the beating heart of the nation. Coronavirus, I didn't even know what a coronavirus was a year ago and so given there's so much change it's an opportunity for us now to really see how each party has developed where they currently sit and where they will hope maybe go in the future what their prospects are so i'm going to start off obviously we need to talk about the government the government have obviously since their last party conference they've won a stonky majority of 80 seats they've delivered brexit or at least left the left under withdrawal agreement they're still some enter type of trading negotiations. They've started this new levelling up agenda. And we've also had the response to coronavirus, something we've talked about many times on the show, on many of the other shows on Raw as well. And obviously, people will have their different views on whether it has been good or bad. So, Johnny, I'm going to come to you first. What do you make of the Tory party at the moment? Do you think that they're 
in a good place? Do you think that their prospects for the future are currently looking good? Or do you think that there are some real sticking points at the moment that need to be dealt with that could really bring the party down and have some barriers for the future? Well, I think uh, you've got to look at it, um, you know, with a dual-pronged approach. At the end of the day, uh, coronavirus is dominating at the moment, but uh, we forget it hasn't happened in UK politics for a while, but we've got four more years until the next election. Hopefully, fingers crossed, things should have, um, you know, lessened by then with coronavirus and um, Boris could get back to, you know, governing with a small government and not big uh, government, you know, forcing of restrictions and whatnot, which actually are very, you know, anti-conservative. But I think he's managed to get the majority, which allows him to, you know, have a year of um, you know, bigger government than conservative members would like. But uh, I think in four years' time, it's a whole other ballgame. I think Harold Wilson said, uh, weeks a long time in politics. You know, we've got a long time until the next election and there's time to regroup and bring back conservative policies. Well, absolutely. And on that point of conservative policy, you raised something quite interesting because the conference speech yesterday from Boris Johnson was talking a lot. I'll see you talk about this whole idea of levelling up a sort of more green recovery, but particularly emphasising the role of the private sector. But we also saw in particular on previous days, Priti Patel advancing the importance of law and order. Uh, Rishi Sunak really advocating the importance of strong fiscal responsibility. So do you think that this is a sign that the government is going to edge back towards those more traditional conservative values, even now during the pandemic, when the opposition are pressuring the government to really keep expanding government, to keep government spending big at the moment? Um, you know, without a doubt, uh, actually, it, it's bizarre because the, the conference speech Boris gave yesterday was levelling up in, with small government, not big intervention. And actually, you'd be mistaken to think that the actions of the government at the moment follow that uh, because they don't, you know. But I think the key issue is the we're thinking five years time ahead. You know, coronavirus won't dominate things for years and years and years. So I think actually that basically just, you know, putting out the fire and saying we're still the party of small government, uh, fiscal responsibility, law and order, but you need to stick with us for, for a year or so. Okay, well, I'll come to Rose on that next. So Johnny raised an interesting point there. The Tory party, even right now, in the midst of a pandemic where there's pressure on them to expand the size of government and spend, are still trying to advocate these traditional conservative values that have made it appeal to the electorate for so long. Do you think that's the right way for the government to be going at this moment? Do you think that the notions and the optimistic stances that Boris Johnson gave in his conference speech yesterday is reflective of the right way for the national mood at the moment? I would talk, I would say kind of yes and no. It depends which particular mood we're talking about. I think everyone was so polarised, straight down the middle, about how the government handling this, about the party of government in general. I think for those people... For the reason that the Tories still somehow have a poll standing, very much in keeping with the people want kind of hope and positivity and optimism, and we're not going to be doing this forever. But at the same time, conversely, on the flip side, the people like me who kind of consider themselves to be on the left and not very much not a Tory, I think it comes off almost as quite tone deaf. Um, just because the way that this crisis has been handled, it's been one fiasco after another, it's been one incident after another. And I think it's it's just not 
good enough, quite frankly, to go kind of full, all guns out, blazing optimists who were kind of imprisoned in their halls so do you think maybe though boris johnson is speaking to perhaps his party in his way as well as the nation because we've seen a lot of accusations even some people within the tory party have said boris johnson suffering from long covid he's lost his mojo and so was this do you think this speech was more boris johnson trying to speak to the party to reassure them that he is still the person that they elected a year ago or was this him speaking to the nation Maybe perhaps not acknowledging what everyone knows that it will be tough, but trying to present that unifying, optimistic future that people can get behind and almost might bring them behind the restrictions if we know that's the final result. To be honest, I think I think this whole time I think he has been speaking more to the party. And even the fact that it was in it was obviously in the context of being a speech to the but, but I think he's very much kind of playing the same sense that got him elected in the first place. Um and I think Jim Jones earlier was a really good example of this. The fact that instead of kind of going, right, I'm going to speak to the country, I'm going to explain in kind of clear, simple terms, this is our reasoning. Instead, we'll kind of we'll do the long and move on. And to me, I suggest he's not really going to the whole country. He's kind of going purely to a few back. Okay, Johnny, I'm going to come back to you now on Kind of following on from that point, so Boris Johnson, Rose says, is not going to the country, he's going to the party. On the flip side, Keir Starmer has been quite critical of the government's approach to coronavirus, often saying that he would have spent more than the government suggesting, or he would have done more earlier than what the government is suggesting. If we can look at the Labour Party right now, because Keir Starmer in the polls has been seen as the more competent Prime Minister recently, and of course, the YouGov poll published a week ago put Labour three points ahead in the polls. So do you think compared to Johnson that Starmer is speaking more to the nation right now? Um, well, what I'd say is it's an incredibly easy job being an opposition leader when apparently things are so obvious on what to do. I would say in, in a slight defense of Boris that, you know, there isn't a how to deal with a global pandemic, you know, handbook, which uh, he just had to look at and could see, oh, these are the really easy answers to do. And um, what, you know, restrictions to put in place. Um, I think, you know, Keir Starmer does offer a very good, moderate voice uh, and he's exploiting it. Uh, and that's not his own fault, but it's easy to exploit as an opposition leader when we're such a divided country and people seemingly are experts on how you should deal with a pandemic. When, you know, a year ago, no one had any idea what a coronavirus was or how we'd, you know, it, it was farcical. It was, you know, films were made about, you know, pandemics and stuff like this. This wasn't something which people actually genuinely thought could happen. Okay, well, certainly a lot of, I guess the point really from that, that we didn't obviously expect the coronavirus, even when it was still in China, a lot of people still weren't expecting it would come over here. Rose, I want to come to you. Um, now, I know I could see from... Um, your camera down the bottom of my screen, you took um, slight concern with what Johnny was saying there. Now, there was, of course, an NHS report published in 2016 that showed that they believed that they didn't have enough capacity to deal with a pandemic. Um, your response to Johnny there, please. Well, again, I'd say again, it's just not good enough to say, well, to be fair, it's a pandemic. Nobody saw this coming when there almost has been kind of a flavour of how to deal with it because we've seen countries all around the world dealing with it incredibly successfully. And I think it's also a little bit British 
say every hotel to do it in hindsight when the policies the government the government's implemented have just been absolutely ridiculous. So things like the 10 p.m. curfew, when it seems like not one single person in the entire cabinet office, office had the thought that shutting everything at the same time is going to cause a massive cluster of people on the street and in public transport. It's not. It's not so people going well in hindsight. You should have done this. People pointing out this just isn't good enough. The responses are badly thought through and reacted. Do you think this is the fault of the government, the politicians making the decision, or the advisors, the scientific advisors, Chris Whitty, Patrick Valance? There's been a lot more, or a lot less consensus, shall I say, with regards to what Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance have been saying in the science they've been producing now at this point in the pandemic than there was in March, April. I mean, I think that's a difficult question. Um, more recently, the government hasn't been very good at publishing the exact advice that it's had. So, as you can tell, I was watching PM News earlier, but um, Pierre Sarmer asked a question about the recent kind of discovery that there's a disparity in the constituencies that are being locked down. So, Boris's um, constituency in Uxbridge has, I think it's about 62 cases per 1,000, and it hasn't been put into local lockdown, whereas constituencies with much lower infection um, and asked if the government was going to publish the advice they've received on that or any kind of justification for why they're doing that. And again, Boris Johnson was kind of stop talking Britain down and completely move on. So I think that's a really difficult question to answer, just because we know what a lot of the justification is. Okay, Johnny, if I can come back to you quickly, just on, on that point. Um, it is a very difficult question to answer in terms of who, where the responsibility lies with the decisions, but... Do you think the government maybe haven't been taking certain decisions correctly or they've been following the wrong advice and that has maybe led to the situation now where Boris Johnson has seemed to be less competent than Keir Starmer? Um, I think it's very challenging times. And actually, you know, the last person who wants to go against his core beliefs and values about small government and, you know, keeping liberties is Boris Johnson, you know, they're not putting these measures in place for no reason. So in some cases, they have gone too far, in my opinion. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, there's hundreds of scientists telling them probably different things, opposing things. It's an incredibly tough decision. What I would say is uh, Boris Johnson, always wanting to be premier his whole life, has rather had a, uh, quite a baptism of fire in his first year, uh, considering <laughs> it was you know, probably seen as... Um, an easy job probably to him, but he's had quite a shock. And um, and yes, you know, Keir Starmer probably has been able to air a sort of confidence and competence as well. But you know, if the if the boot was on the other foot, you'd be uh, you'd be surprised what the Tories would be saying right now. Mm, well, absolutely, of course. One of the things Keir Starmer has said throughout um, the entire pandemic is that he doesn't want to be in opposition for opposition's sake. And it's interesting that one, of course, one of the things that the Corbyn government got accused of doing a lot was politicising and making attacks out of situations that really didn't deserve politicisation. The likes of the Salisbury poisoning, for example, when Jeremy Corbyn and the front bench were criticised for raising the issues of Tory donors from Russia in Parliament following that poisoning. Um, I guess it follows on from that, really, that Keir Starmer's leadership so far, a lot of him has been seen to try and distance himself from what was seen as the vices of the Corbyn era in Labour, the likes of anti-Semitism, the perception that Labour was not a patriotic party. Indeed, Keir Starmer made many impositions in his conference speech that Labour was now a patriotic party again. How much of this do you think 
is Starmer trying to re-establish that working class base that has been very central to the Labour Party? And do you think he's going to be able to achieve that, looking at how, firstly, the government's handled the pandemic, but also the way that he has been acting in terms of his policies, maybe? Um, I think he has, uh, you know, rebranded and put a lot of uh, impotence onto a patriotic working class Red Wall voter. Um, what I'd say, though, is polling has consistently showed the Conservatives in and around 40. And if you look at the government's approval rating when it comes to the handling of coronavirus, it's way below that. So we're at a point in our political uh, life where people are disapproving of the Conservative government at the moment, but still rather voting for, for them over, over Keir Starmer, Keir Starmer's Labour. Um, and I think it's going to be very, very challenging, very, very challenging. And if at the moment... Keir Starmer isn't, you know, 10 points ahead, 15% ahead in the polls. He's going to have a real problem when COVID hopefully is, uh, is sorted out. OK, Rose, I'll come to you. Similar question there. Um, Keir Starmer is nearly six months in the job now. And we've started to see the way he's trying to shape the Labour Party. That conference speech was his way of getting back to Red Bull voters. But equally, many of his base are very much wedded to the Corbyn era. Many of the members were inspired to join the party by Corbyn. That's their identity in the Labour Party. Do you think that Starmer can reclaim or he's on the path to start making progress with those working class rebel voters? Or do you think there's far more structural issues that are going to prevent him, irregardless of the claims of his greater competency at the moment? I mean, I think any Labour leader has always got a very difficult start to force in few years, Labour's got an incredibly complicated voting to hold together. Um, I think it's almost too soon to be saying if Starmer's fully broken with the association with Corbyn, just because the central is still there, is still very, very important. Um, and factionalism is still a huge issue, and all it does is kind of put that divide and put the Corbyn era back into people's minds. Um, so, for example, there's a story that broke in the past 24 hours about um, Lemon Plusty, um, disrupting Unite to, I think it was to limit their donations, or it was it's something to do with Unite Limited. I think all this is doing is just showing Summer hasn't fully broken the Unite era yet. And I think local elections next year, I think, are going to be the first really interesting test to see if he's done enough to kind of explicitly put Labour on the back Well, absolutely. Of course, those local elections, fingers crossed, they take place next year real opportunity to see i guess both things obviously the response to the government's handling of the pandemic but also of course the way Keir Starmer has worked over the last year there is a lot for us to be having a look there but we have to move on now because across the pond uh, you you've, i hope you've probably noticed that there is an election taking place at the moment and again not that i'm trying to steal more pop culture sounds like i did with london del rey last week we have spring watch we have Autumn Watch, we have Crime Watch, we now have Election Watch, and this is our America version of it. Ro Rose is loving it. This is Election Watch America, so this is our opportunity for us to kind of catch up on what's been going on in the US election over the last week. Quite a lot. It's been quite a dramatic week. I don't think there's any doubt about that. So before we start, I just want to get everyone's quick opinion about, like, 60 seconds. What did you make of the presidential debate? last week my reaction was posted on raw news's facebook page and twitter also on our twitter as well make sure to check that out so rose i'm gonna come to you what did you make on the um 
election debate last week. 60 seconds. What did you what did you make of it? I'm, my first response probably should be three sixty seconds. But um, I think it was a real, real low point um, for American democracy. Just because I remember in 2016, kind of the defining talking point was everyone going, is this the best coup we could come up with? And little did we know that in 2019 it would be, is this really the best coup we could come up with? I thought it was kind of <laughs> a testament to just the complete abandoning of kind of actual policy and detail of what are we actually going to do in favour of potentially two men shouting at each other. It was bad. Yeah, it did rather feel a tad childish at times, just sitting there watching that debate. Um, Johnny is back now. What did you make of the debate last week? Um, well, you know, a lot of interrupting, just to get out of the way. Um, <laughs> I think, though, it's easy to say Trump lost it, but you can't say Biden won it. And that's the problem which we have at the moment in American politics, which is probably, uh, probably making this VP debate tonight even even more important and exciting um i think the uh the tactic trump is going for is energizing his base getting his voters out and the end of the day people know what they're going to get with trump and um while he's whilst he's a very unappealing candidate he managed to get enough votes to win in 2016 and people know what they're going to get with him he's not going to push away voters by interrupting because that's what he does that's trump um on the other hand biden uh you know didn't make any massive muck-ups but did did not seem as competent as i would have hoped uh, for an opposition party leader in america to trump well yeah i guess i guess the reaction from that debate it was uninspiring certainly yes. i don't think anyone learned anything new and perhaps though maybe we did learn something new last week with regarding coronavirus donald trump was diagnosed with coronavirus in him and much of the Republican Party have been rather downplaying the importance of coronavirus, despite the fact that it had over 4 million cases in the US and over 200,000 people had died from it. So Donald Trump was diagnosed last Friday. Though. That was when we were told he was diagnosed. He was taken that evening to Walter Reed Military Hospital in, the, in Washington. Um, quite an interesting set of press conferences given over the weekend regarding his condition. And some people say that or he was given experimental treatment. Some of the doctors were saying, oh, he's on the way up. Chief of Staff Mark Meadows gave a pretty damning sort of mandate on his health, saying that it wasn't, it wasn't looking good for the president. Now, he was released back to the White House on Monday, although doctors have acknowledged he's not out of the woods yet. And people are really suggesting that there's a risk he infects more staff in the White House. Quite a lot of members of his team in the White House have been infected. So... Let's go on to that. Rose, I'm going to come to you first on this. Just how much of an impact do you think Trump's coronavirus diagnosis has had on the election? And do you think it's safe? Do you think he's safe to be going out campaigning and interacting with voters like he says he wants to be doing? I mean, on the on the I don't think it's safe at all, just because we don't know the true extent of his condition. We don't even know when he's diagnosed. We don't know when he's um, and the videos that we bring out over the weekend of him standing there, you can see desperately trying not to cough and trying not to kind of very obviously gasping for breath. But I think it's just it's not safe at all to be able to let him go out and pay. I think the in terms of the impact, it, I think there's kind of one of two possible ways it could go. So either he can levy his supposed recovery in three ways, not as small as scientifically possible. Um, as a way to kind of like, you know, you know, I had it, it's fine, look, we can reopen. 
Um, as I said before, he obviously doesn't necessarily need a majority of people to vote for him to win the election. He needs that small minority. But on the flip side, I think he really, really, really energised people against him. We saw the reaction to him coming out and saying, stop letting Corona dominate your lives, when the US death toll is absolutely horrific. But I think it could turn a lot of soft Republicans against him. Well, that's, that's an interesting point you raise about people turning against Trump. Of course, it was people said the key swing states is about 100,000 ish votes in the likes of Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Ohio, Florida. Those are kind of the five big swing states that turned for Trump in 2016 and gave him those votes in very close margins to take him into the White House. Do you think in those states in particular, where there is that very much that working class, kind of typical like with the, we had in the UK, that typical working class, uneducated, blue collar voter who's kind of felt left behind and got the appeal of Donald Trump. Do you think they will have their attitudes changed by Trump catching coronavirus? Do you think that will change how they will be voting? I think anyone who is changing their opinion um, based on Trump getting coronavirus, I think their opinion would have probably been changed already. Way the government handled it, it's been even, it's been even worse than we have. I think they've really they've put no work in whatsoever to kind of safeguard those working class communities. Financial support's been minimal. States have reopened against kind of medical advice. The death rate has no signs of down whatsoever. So I think from getting Corona would almost be kind of kind of the icing on the cake, really. So, so I think their minds would have very much been changed already if they were waiting. Okay, Johnny, I want to come to you next. Now, Rose makes an interesting point there in terms of that particular set of voters in those key swing states, talking about things like the support that they've had with coronavirus. Of course, Congress has failed to pass the package. Mitch McConnell has been seen to be rather obstinate in passing these measures. How much do you think Trump's coronavirus diagnosis, but more widely his response to the pandemic will affect how people are voting? Do you think his diagnosis has been that big October surprise that's going to really change this election? <laughs> well, you know, we thought we had the uh, October surprise with um, Amy Coney Barrett, but seemingly now that's on the, the back burners. Um, I think, you know, as, as Hillary Clinton said, one of the biggest fundraisers for Trump was the media in 2016. Um, and he's basically now been given a free $1 billion media package by dominating all the major news channels for the last uh, three, four, five days. Um, you know, also Biden taking off, the Biden campaign taking off the attack ads. I think that's also, you know, quite influential. Uh, I think there's a level of naivety of the last sort of, um, you know, take on the coronavirus handling in America. You have 50 states, you have 50 separate health, um, you know, organizations in those states. The last person in the world who wants the coronavirus numbers to skyrocket is of course the incumbent President Trump. He's, you know, probably trying his hardest. And as I, as I often point out, the people who are probably making decisions aren't Trump. They're the experts behind in his task force who are definitely having a big effect. Um, and, you know, it's just ludicrous to claim that the death toll is only high because of the way Trump's handled it. You know, if anyone was president of the USA at the moment, no matter who, Obama, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, the death toll would be just as high. You know, you can't just... Uh, claim you follow science and then you know overnight it's going to be okay and the death toll isn't going to be high look at look at this country look at france look at spain you know cases are going up again there's a second wave again even though supposedly 
we have you know learned about it you know cases are going up again it's not as easy as just saying oh he's been terrible put someone else in power then it's gonna you know overnight change certainly one thing you raised i just want to quickly get your thought on this on the fact that obviously donald trump when you were talking there about the fact that the states have obviously played a big role in this crisis um he has certainly been pushing the idea that it is the states who are responsible for the issues and that he and the federal government doesn't have that much power. Do you think that's something that will cut through to the voters that he needs to stay elected? Well, the, the federal government at any level is extremely unpopular in America. Just look at the approval rating of even Congress. People do not like the concept of, uh, you know, a centralised government, the other you know, side of the country making decisions for them. I think it's very, very hard. But, you know, red states of red governors like Ron DeSantis in Florida get criticised, you know, at such a high level for opening up. When if you just look at the bare statistics, states on the East Coast, like New Jersey, states like New York have had, you know, far more deaths and far more cases. So, you know, the danger is we're politicising a global pandemic, which, you know, it's not there to be politicized it's incredibly hard to handle these things no matter who you are no matter whether you're president of the united states whether no matter you're prime minister of the uk you know i'd love to see people criticize it you know taking taking on those roles because it's impossible no certainly and we could talk all day about the federal system and the nature of government in the us it is fascinating but we fascinating. don't have time right now yeah. but I want to just move on to one last thing with regards to the election. Um, vice presidential debate is taking place tonight. If you are listening on demand, I'm assuming you will have listened to it. And so you can laugh at us if our predictions are wrong for this debate tonight. Um, Mike Pence, current vice president, taking on Senator Kamala Harris, Joe Biden's running mate. I want to come to each of you on your thoughts. How do you think that debate will go tonight? How important, given what has happened in the last week, do you think this debate could be? to the election. So, Rose, I'm going to come to you first on this point. I think Mike Pence is a very, very different kind of politician than Trump is. And that's why I've almost, I almost consider him to be more dangerous because he comes across as kind of a very standard cookie-cutter politician. But obviously he still holds these absolutely appalling views. But I think, I think this debate, I think it might almost be kind of, it will make the Trump campaign feel almost safer in a way. I think that's a slightly odd way of putting it. I think it might make the Trump campaign feel almost safer for those voters that are still kind of wavering in the middle of being concerned by Trump being kind of erratic and loud, that they've got this person who appears to be kind of the safe, sensible middleman as kind of um, the cooling influence. And then especially no, considering I um, Trump's corona diagnosis, the question of who's going to be vice president is now massively more important. So, no, absolutely. And of course, on that point, um, Kamala Harris, a lot of people have quite mixed opinions. Obviously, she is a very strong um, questioner. We saw it during the Brett Kavanaugh debates, but she has been seen to flip flop on positions in the past, particularly on the issue of race, where she attacked Biden so heavily during the first Democrat debate last year. Do you think this may hold her back potentially against Mike Pence? I'm not, I'm not sure it will, largely because I think there will be very different um, very different contexts. So when you're in a debate in a primary, kind of the onus is on, I am different to the party and that's why I'm great. Whereas if it's in a presidential debate, I think she's going to be absolutely kind of on the party line, following every word. And also her campaign are going to be a bad because she's so 
that's her greatest weakness that she comes across as someone who can be a bit insincere and, like you said, flip flop on everyone, hoping it would be something that they plan for. Well, we, we will wait and see to what happens in the debate. Johnny, if I can come to you now, same two questions. How do you think the debate will go? And how do you how important is this given the events of the last week? Uh, so, firstly, I'd say I stayed up every night in the uh, election campaign last last uh, cycle and watched the, all the three debates between Trump and Clinton and the one uh, debate education. between Pence and Kane. Uh, yes. <laughs> and um, what I would say is, you know, whilst Clinton put up a good, very good performance and I think actually, you know, dispatched Trump, Pence, you know, wiped the floor away with Kane. Pence is your career politician. He's a House of Representatives. Uh, member, then a governor, now VP. He, uh, you know, he's the polar opposite of Trump. He's not going to interrupt. He's going to bite back with facts and and zingers and whatnot. Um, you know, on the other side of the coin, you know, uh, Harris had, was district attorney of San Francisco, attorney general of California, and obviously senator from California. And uh, she she can hold her own in the debate. She's extremely accomplished. That's probably our high point in the Democrat primaries. Uh, were the debates? She'll bring energy. I should bring sort of vigor to it, but I think Pence will come across a lot more, uh, you know, competent. I think uh, it's almost the polar opposite of what you would say Trump and Pence debate would be. I think it's going to be the other way around, and I do think Pence will actually come through and really, really come off really well. Um, you're saying you bring up the uh, you know coronavirus aspect of it. Um, I've you know I've no doubt Trump will be back for the next two debates. I have no doubt about it. You know, you've seen the Biden campaign saying they don't want to do it now. They're worried. Uh, you know, I think the energy now is definitely going to be the momentum is going to be with Trump. And I think this is going to this debate between Pence and, and Kamala is really going to set uh, set the wheels in motion. No, absolutely. And of course, there is no place where Donald Trump is more comfortable than in front of the camera talking about himself. So we will wait to see what happens there. Um, now, it's time for us to move on to our final part of the show. And this is the part where we bring it back onto campus or for I say, for the sakes of us reporting the news, we're reporting the news straight out of campus. Again, no stolen pop culture <laughs> references there whatsoever. Um, I want to ask, obviously, this has been the first week since we've got back to university and it's fair to say rather chaotic start, I think, for many people adjusting firstly to online learning but also particularly for freshers as well, meeting new people, really getting those opportunities to join societies, go to events. So I want to come to the both of you first, really. Firstly, on the point of online teaching. Now, I'm going to start off with this comment from Charlotte Earl. Um, sadly, due to the language and Ofcom, I won't be able to show it on air, but I can slightly read it, paraphrasing it on air. So Charlotte Earl has commented and she has said that She's currently found online uni to be a nightmare. She said that there's been poor internet, which means that streams have constantly buffered and crashed. She said at times learning has been impossible. She said the students union and the university college union, one of the main unions of the lecturers here, both of whom have called for online teaching. They really have no idea how many students will be able to learn anything at all if all teaching moves online. And she says as well, pointing out uh, having a jibe at some of our shows here on Raw, though, of course, hopefully not ours. Um, she says that the Wi-Fi present on certain raw shows has proved how impractical online learning is for some. So let's go from there. Rose, let's come to you first. 
what do you make of the whole online learning experience so far? Do you agree with Charlotte? I mean, I think anyone who has suffered through me on Raw last week, I think, I think it's going to be aware that Wi-Fi is going to be an absolutely huge problem. It sounds like a small thing, but if you can't connect to them, that's the only kind of profit contact hours, then that's a problem. I think my main issue with the whole online learning battle is the fact that nobody's actually spoken to students. Nobody's consulted students. No one has said, what are, like, what are your problems going to be with this? Like, I remember there was a huge outcry when the SU decided they're going to send a start campaigning for it just because we hadn't been asked at all. And I think the response by certain departments, I can only speak to my own, um, but we've had issues with kind of module registration crash. People have been kind of thrown off of things because of um, technical problems. People weren't told when seminar registrations opened because of technical problems. And then instead of actually addressing our concerns, we were essentially told, don't worry, I in the ranking for about 20 minutes before we even got onto kind of the technical problems that students have had. So I think it's very difficult not to feel like our concerns have been very, very guarded in this whole situation. No, absolutely. And I think there is a sense that students have kind of felt like they've been disadvantaged and they have kind of been forgotten. Of course, there are campaigns and people who have been set up, Quick Work Students First, as you mentioned, the first campaign that was set up against um, the fully online learning. I wonder how the two people who set that up are getting on um johnny hoyle let's come to you next on the point of online learning so far what has your experience been of it so uh, you know to put it put it lightly there's been a few teething issues but um i do think it's something which you know as you say students won't have much say in so you've got to really just stick with it um what's unfortunate about it is that you know if you want to do well it it does offer opportunities to, you know, make sure you have good Wi-Fi, go to every online thing, and you can do very well. I'm worried for the people who aren't necessarily motivated 100% for work. And, you know, uni is more of a semi-social thing, uh, you know, big in societies, big in sports, because, you know, it's so easy with online teaching to just turn your camera off, to turn your mic off, and appear to be there and just not pay attention or whatever. So I think actually the, um, the difference between those who do well and those who don't do well is going to be is damning. It's going to be really damning this year. But we're just going to have to wait and see. You know, it's just the start. Uh, we have many more weeks of this. Could even get worse. No, absolutely. Of course, cases are rising in the UK and there is the threat of future lockdowns being imposed. Johnny, if I can stick with you. Um, what do you think on that line then that people could do to maybe improve? The whole aspect of online learning at the moment what would you like to see that could address perhaps the issues that you've identified with students who are taking online seminars maybe not fully engaging as much as they could well uh, firstly what i'd say is that something which would make it worse is making it even more online which i hope doesn't happen uh but you know at the best of times in a seminar in person not many people necessarily you know give their views and do speak up but I think there's just so much more opportunity for people to be quiet and not get involved online. Um, and it's got to be from the seminars, the seminar tutors, really. They've got, you know, they need to bring the energy for the students. And I've had uh, a couple of seminar seminars now. You know, some teachers uh, have been really transparent and have said, you know, it's not the best uh, you know, arrangement, but we're going to put effort in and, you know, got everyone to say hello or whatnot. Even that is just so much more helpful than just lecturing online. 
and not getting the students involved? No, definitely. And Rose, same question. What what do you want to see? What improvements do you want right now that will make this online learning experience better? I don't think there's a huge amount um, I can add to that. I'd say I just kind of, I want essentially the recognition that this is going to cause an enormous impact on the um, This recognition of some of the refugees that's under by having to do everything online. Yeah, I think there's not really much more I can add to that. I think I've got faith in the seminar tutors. Um, so obviously they've been working really hard to make it kind of accessible and make them kind of work online. Uh, but I just want kind of the recognition that this is going to be very, very stressful and the recognition that the uni has made mistakes. And of course, one thing that has come out today, um, the UCU were on Twitter earlier and said that they feel that if the demands for lecturers not on students not being able to go fully online, if that's not the case, then they would consider a ballot for a potential industrial action. What was your reaction to that? I think I think the UCU are doing their job in that their role is to represent kind of the le kind of lecturers and tutors and staff at uni. And I think that they've got some very, very legitimate um, legitimate concerns about going on the point of making industrial action at this point is just yet thing as students kind of looked over and seen the positive. Then that's that's our teaching goal essentially, if they go for that. No, absolutely. Johnny, same question to you. What do you make on the prospect of industrial action as a result of um, this? I think it's a, you know, playing with fire here. If we are saying online, you know, that online, you know, learning as it is already is minimising education, I think your know, industrial action is just going to uh, massively multiply that. Um, you know, I'll tell a little story. I've got a friend, he's at Northumbria. And uh, he said, he's one of those who's tested positive, you know, last week, 770 tested positive, 78 with symptoms. And, um, you know, the teacher said, the teachers union, uh, whatever it was up there said, oh, it's because the campus was open. And he said, he could tell me for free, it's not. It's, it's freshers, huge fresher house parties, flat parties, whatever. So actually you need to look at the problem with this. Cases aren't necessarily going to go up because we have in-person uh, learning. It's, university not cracking down enough on flat parties um and, and house parties or whatnot well certainly i just want to bring in um josh lucas mitter's comment quickly um he has just said that university staff are not above any other staff he says that we have less lessons we have social distancing open windows and masks as well as regular cleaning which is so much safer than what most teachers have in schools so thanks very much for getting involved there josh i think really a lot to discuss there with online learning and to see how that develops over the next few weeks. Another key aspect of the university, just to quickly cover, of course, is the social aspect that you touched on there, Johnny. Um, do you think that currently that students are getting enough of a social aspect? And um, what would you do to potentially improve that social aspect? What sort of one event maybe would you do that you think will improve that? Rose, if I could come to you first. I was a very big fan of what unis like Birmingham have been doing, where they've essentially laid out there's a massively socially distant club tables, essentially one where you can go there with your flatmates and actually kind of be outside and with other people, but but still in a safe way. I mean, I I heard quite an interesting opinion that suggested that students need social aspect, particularly this this, this class of freshmen. Let's be honest, have had quite a difficult year, and I think it's only human for them to want to go out and meet people at uni. And there's a case to suggest that had the SU kind of put more 
kind of put more ingenuity and more thought into the freshers events and tried to have maybe some small limited in person feedback, then we might not have the same situation where it's used to going out and having house Okay, Johnny, if I can give you the same the same things that Rose said there. If the uni did more, then we wouldn't be having potentially these house parties where we had 200, 300 people gathering in a hall that's not only uses up police resources, but also massively increases the risk of spreading coronavirus. Um, well, first of all, I'd say is thank God I'm not a fresher this year uh, because I'd find things very hard. And it's easy to, you know, say from here in Leamington, don't have flat parties or whatnot. Um, but I think it's very hard for the university to come up with a, a feasible plan. Online socials aren't going to work. People aren't going to pay for, you know, online disco days. Um, and I think it's, it is very hard. And these are the key issues the SU are trying to work out because they're losing money. Don't, don't make a mistake. How many people buy the pop pass? How many people go to circle? They're losing a lot of money. They're trying their hardest. Unfortunately, it's not good enough. Um, I think it's got to be more in-person stuff, but really, really carefully planned out. And that's the issue, really. It's going to take a lot of thought and a lot of arranging to sort out. No, absolutely. And obviously that social aspect, mentioning Disco Day, of course, tonight would have been pop. Yeah. Circling pop made up my Wednesday nights. If I can make a quick pitch to the SU, maybe. I, I came up with this idea just randomly in my head. If you can get Disco Dave on the piazza, groups of six, table service purple, I, I, would, I would help you organise that. I'm just going to leave that there if anyone from the SU is watching. I would love for that. And on that note, we have to leave it for the show today. Thank you so much to everyone who's been watching, commenting, reacting as we go along. Thank you so much as well to my guests, to Rose and to Johnny for absolutely fantastic debates. Thanks very much for coming on. And also, please remember to like and follow our social media pages. And to listen to this podcast as well on all of our platforms, on Mixcloud, on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and all of the other platforms that we will be putting this out on. And, of course, Raw, 5 o'clock Saturday, it goes out on all their social media. We'll be back for another live stream, same time next week. But until then, thanks very much for watching. Great. Thanks for being on.